It's 1967 Madrid, Spain, and back we go to the Prado Gallery and 10-year-old me. Before I found my way to Goya's black paintings, I wound up in room 56B. It's there that Botticelli's The Tale of Nastagio degli Onesti resides. This four-panel painting depicts the story of Nastagio, a young man who was rejected by the daughter of a nobleman. The story is from Boccaccio's Decameron, where this Nastagio retreats to a pine forest on the outskirts of the city. It's there that he sees a young woman being pursued by mastiffs and a young man on horseback. This man tells Nastagio that he too was rejected by a young woman. Her rejection led him to suicide, and she was unmoved by his death. At her own death, she was condemned to hell. In hell, they were both to be punished, he for his suicide and she for her indifference. Every Friday, for as many months as she had ignored him, he was destined to ride down the young woman, cut out her heart, and feed it to his dogs. These four paintings were commissioned by Antonio Pucci in 1483 on the occasion of the marriage of his son. Let me repeat that. These four paintings were commissioned by Antonio Pucci on the occasion of the marriage of his son. For those of you familiar with Botticelli, and even of those who aren't, I'm pretty sure that you might recognize his style. His famous painting, um, The Birth of Venus, or as we call it, Venus on the Half Shell, is just about as ubiquitous as the Mona Lisa. Um, his style is bright, it's colorful, blue skies. His women are beautiful, with long, flowing hair, usually blonde. Uh, his paintings are filled with birds and flowers and vines. The Nastagio painting is no different. Uh, he uses the same colors. Um, his people are beautiful. They're dressed in rich garments. The sky is blue, and of course, there's the Botticelli girl. She is, of course, beautiful. She is, of course, young. She is, of course, blonde. Her hair is rippling out behind her like ripe wheat, and she's dressed in... Well, she's not really dressed. She's got a tiny bit of fabric that clings to her, just barely enough for modesty's sake, covering her breasts and her pubis. And how she's keeping it on, your guess is as good as mine. And she's running. She runs through the panels, panicked, terrified, naked. She's being chased by a man on horseback, a young man, Botticelli Beautiful. He's on a horse, which is pure white, the tack festooned in gold. The man is in gold, too. He's dressed in armor, golden armor, for protection, for conflict, and for war. A cloak streams out behind him, red as blood. He wields a sword on high, poised to threaten life, to terrify, to maim, to slice and stab and kill. And he has dogs, two mastiffs, huge, bent on their prey, which is this young girl, naked, terrified, and alone. We first see the girl running through the wedding feast, the man right at her heels, the dogs sinking their teeth into her flesh. The people at the wedding feast react, or don't. The women rise in horror. The men, less startled, some alarmed, some impassive, look at the man. The women are looking at the girl. In the next panel, the man on horseback has chased the young girl into the forest. There are two men there. They're picking up sticks, or maybe they're tilling. They don't even react as the young girl runs by. In the background, there's a tent. There's a bunch of young men standing in front of it, chatting. We see boats. We see castles in the background. It's just Renaissance business as usual. But it's the third panel that got me, the third panel that staked me out in front of the room. I would not and could not let my little sisters see this one. 
I wouldn't let them in to see Saturn because of the fear. I wouldn't let them in to see this one because of fear as well, but something else, shame. In this last panel, center stage, the man has finally ridden the girl down. She's dead. The stick picker-uppers, or whoever they are, have finally acknowledged that something is wrong and run away from the scene in horror. The man on horseback has dismounted in his armor, protecting him from frickin' what exactly. His cape is still a swirl of red. There's a branch on the ground that covers the crack between the girl's buttocks, dainty, modest, as if that fucking matters. Because the man is leaning in, reaching inside her. He's gutted her from behind. He's intent on his task. The sword that killed her is safely back in the scabbard. The horse prances and the dogs... It was the dogs that got me. The man has pulled out her guts with his hands and tossed them to his dogs to eat. They're at the bottom right-hand corner of the painting, those dogs. Mastiffs, trained for battle. And at this moment, they're in a horrible battle, fighting over her heart, her liver, her kidneys, all three. And in the background, you see the girl up again, alive, running the man on horseback at her heels with his dogs, while her terrified shrieks are let out over and over and over. The murder of this girl for refusing the advances of a man doomed to be ridden down and her guts fed to dogs for all eternity. Humans have been making art for millennia, starting in caves roughly 40,000 years ago. From those early beginnings, we have constantly striven to accurately portray and make sense of the world that we find ourselves in. But as sunlit and enlightened as the opening of a cave may be, there are equally dark places the farther in you go. Foreboding, dangerous, filled with fear and horror. We make art about those places too. Welcome to Artists Obscura, where we ponder and explore art from the dark end of the cave. Hi, I'm your host, Kathy Rick, and on the show, we discuss dark and disturbing art all throughout history. Today's going to be a little different, though. Uh, number one, we have art historian Elizabeth Bilyeu, who's going to help us untangle some of these works. And secondly, the show's going to be different in that it's going to be more of a critical essay, or as much a critical essay, as it is an exploration of these historical works. It's a topic that's very dear to me, and I hope that you're up for it. Welcome to Artist Obscura, Episode 4, The Perpetual Cult of the Dead Girl. The rage about this episode's subject matter ebbs and flows, but it's always there. The other night, I was re-watching the series Hannibal, and while at my first viewing I was sort of overwhelmed by the tone of the series and the gorgeous attention to the food preparation. I mean, these things are tiny little works of art. What overwhelmed me on the subsequent viewing was the conceit of the main characters, their brilliance, their mental depth, their inner torments, the fact that they're cursed with the knowledge of the dark and unthinkable parts of the human psyche. And we're supposed to feel empathy for them. These poor tortured souls trying so hard to do good by society. But how do we explore with them these dark recesses of the mind, the evil in human souls? And it starts as always, and forever, with the bodies of dead girls. Do they have names, these girls? 
maybe, for an instant. Do they have lives? Never. They're merely macabre tableaus, a gruesome, sexually titillating starting point from which to begin to interact with the real people in the series, the important ones, the ones that really matter, the men, these brilliant men whose pain eclipses the pale, nude, splay-legged, supine bodies displayed for the audience in a crude aping of pre- or post-coitus, impaled on a spear or a sword or in the case of Hannibal, antlers. And why is it always young, nubile women or girls? And why are they always nude or partially nude? And why is there always the presumption, if not the actual fact, of sexual violence, as well as the horrendous insult to the broken bodies of these girls? It's ever-present in our modern culture, from television shows to movies to the popularity of true crime books and podcasts. It's no surprise that in The Handmaid's Tale another series I finally got up enough courage to watch, that the control over women in Gilead is first and foremost predicated on the systemic rape of young women and girls. The younger, the prettier, the whiter the girl, the more we're titillated. But the phenomenon is far, far from new. The sickness of misogyny and sexual and physical violence as a way to control and ultimately destroy women is as old as humankind, and it infects the fine arts like a dread disease. Botticelli's Nastagio degli Onesti has stuck with me over the years as my first grim introduction to the realities of the depiction of women in our culture. This series of paintings was a gift from a nobleman to his son on the occasion of his marriage, presumably to a young girl much like the girl in the paintings. It remains one of the most horrible paintings I have ever seen. The subject matter, yes, yes, but there's horror in its casual violence, the banality of the scenes, the people surrounding the girl and the man. They barely register the violence that's right in front of them. No one lifts a finger to help the girl. They defer to the man, the only one that really matters, the one who was rebuffed, the entitled one, the important one. Like Christopher Plaskin, the Connecticut teen who killed a fellow classmate because she wouldn't go to the prom with him, or Donald Thurman who killed a woman because she ignored his catcalls, or Elliot Roger, or Alec Manassian, or Mark Lapine, or George Sodini, or at the far end of the spectrum, sexual serial killers like Ted Bundy become famous for their horrendous actions, never ceasing to titillate. I mean, would anyone have ever elevated Bundy to cult status had his victims been old women or old men? Of course not had he not sexually violated these young women and girls in the most violent and obscene way possible? Hell no. If I can take this moment to quote Margaret Atwood, who most famously said, men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them. But what was it with the shame? For me, as a little girl, it was, I think, the nakedness of the girl that caused the shame. It was a nakedness that haunted me through every step of every museum I visited. It was a shame of vulnerability, of being on display, of having no protection. Shouldn't I, shouldn't she have been able to protect herself or at least put on some clothing? I ask my students why there are so many paintings of naked women in the great museums of the world. The answer inevitably is because the female body is so beautiful. But is it? Who made that proclamation? And what female body? All female bodies? 
Or is only one form of female body beautiful, acceptable, consumable, desirable? There is a perception that these paintings of nude women, since they hang in the great museums of the world, were meant to be there. That's a big nope. Artists were not rich people. They couldn't afford to paint or sculpt and put their work out there and hope that somebody bought them. Painters were paid by patrons who commissioned specific works. These works of these naked women were basically high-class porn. Uh, This was before photography, obviously, where patrons, wealthy men, would ask their mistresses. Sometimes the painter's mistresses would pose for these things. The women in these paintings were subject as object. They were laid out, splendidly lit, disguised uh, in acceptable tales of ancient Greece or the Bible, uh, like Leda and Europa, or biblical paintings of Susanna and the elders. They were titillating, they were displayed, ready for consumption by the male gaze. I remember wandering around gallery after gallery, seeing naked woman after naked woman, and I remember asking my father, why do the men all get to wear clothes? Why are the ladies all naked? I got the inevitable answer, because the female body is beautiful, but I knew it was a lie. The only thing those naked ladies made me feel was embarrassed, for them, for myself, for my sisters. To me, it felt like those dreams where you go to school and you realize when everybody's laughing at you that you've forgotten to put your clothes on. It was humiliation, shame, and ridicule. And then there was the art that took it farther, where they took all the shame and the humiliation and ridicule and threw it into the realm of murder and darkness and dread. The place where Botticelli's The Tale of Nastagio degli Onesti lives. These were the ones that couldn't be bothered with allegory or tales of the gods or the Bible, where violence and rape and murder isn't cosseted in swirls of cloud or swans or golden showers. Yes, I did mean to use that term. The ones where artifice is gone and only the ugliness remains. The cautionary tale that was so eloquently told by Botticelli, where the hatred of women by men is thrown into sharp relief. One such painting is The Death of Sardanopolis by Eugene Delacroix. A text describing the painting reads thus, King Sardanopolis, draped in white, reclines on a sumptuous, jewel-encrusted bed, adorned with gilded elephant heads and covered with scarlet fabric as his cruel sentence is carried out. The force of the composition matches the violence of the event, the subject matter, architectural setting, dramatic technique and tension, theatrical effects of light and gestures of fear evoke the work of English painters such as Turner, William Eddy, and John Martin. The painting is surprising, too, for the daring of its foreshortened perspective, for the effects of light, and for the cool, clear colors that propel the heart of the scene towards the viewer. The painting features a diagonal emphasized by the flames of the pyre and the sensually writhing bodies that crosses from the bottom right to top left, its colors gradually changing from deep red to pearly pink, against which the creamy flesh of the naked bodies and the raw white of the king's drapery are accentuated." As the city burns in the distance, the palace seems swept away on a raging wave that destroys all notion of hierarchy, gender, species, and rank. 
All logic is lost as masters, soldiers, slaves, men, women, animals, bodies, objects, attitudes, movements, materials, <gasps> life and death are tangled together in this piteous disarray. The text continues. The women resemble the female figures painted by Caraggio or Rubens. Contrasting with the king's perfect stillness, they are convulsed with horror and take their own lives before having their throats slit by officers and slaves. The king's favorite, Mira, lies at his feet, her back naked, her head and arms outstretched on the bed. A guard facing her draws his sword to kill a bare-shouldered female slave. Against a harmony of rich, muted, and refined tones at the bottom right of the funeral pyre, echoing the royal couple, a guard kills a slave whose voluptuous body and pearly golden skin are reminiscent of Reuben's sea nymphs. What I saw and what I still see are women in sexually provocative positions being murdered at the hands of their masters. The murders are not the point of this painting. How can it be about anything other than raw power, sexual violence, and titillation? Well, let's look at another painting, Murder in the House by Jakob Schikaneder, where again, the murder victim is a young, beautiful woman or girl. Her blouse is provocatively pulled from her shoulders. Schikaneder made many sketches of this particular painting, the young, beautiful model, always in various stages of undress. Or let's go back to the Renaissance and take a look at Satyr Mourning Over a Nymph by Piero di Cosimo, a nymph a mythological spirit of nature imagined as a young woman lies on a patch of grass in the foreground, with blood streaming from wounds on her throat and hand. A satyr, the half-man, half-goat, kneels next to her, mourning her death. A dog sits at her feet, balancing the stooping figure of the satyr and seemingly in mourning as well. More dogs appear at the lakeside in the background. It's a beautiful image of pastoral melancholy. Again, the girl is nude, young, blonde. And beautiful. But the scene is unalterably changed when you read Dr. Michael Baum's assessment of the painting. Painted by Piero di Cosimo in 1495, a satyr mourning over a nymph supposedly depicts a scene from Ovid's Metamorphosis. In that story, Procris, the nymph, is accidentally killed in the woods when her hunter husband, Cephalus, mistakes her for a wild beast and hurls a spear through her. It's a typical choice of a scene for a Renaissance artist with only one problem. A close examination proves there's no way Cosimo's Procris could have been killed by accident. Professor Baum writes, All signs point towards the scene depicting a brutal murder. Procris has deep lacerations around her hands consistent with someone trying to fend off a knife attack, defensive wounds. Her left hand is also bent backwards in a position known as the waiter's tip typically found in murder victims who've had their cervical cord severed at points C3 and C4. Finally, there's a neck wound corresponding to the positions of C3 and C4. Rather than being a scene of romance, Cosimo's painting shows the aftermath of a frenzied knife attack. This probably wasn't intentional. Baum thinks that Cosimo probably asked for a model from the morgue and just happened to get a murder victim. The real victim, nameless... As usual, the life and body appropriated for a titillating gaze wrapped in beautiful colors and a whiff of romance. Or let's consider Francisco Goya's bandits stripping and raping two women and bandit murdering a woman. Though these last by Goya are more protest than titillation, as is Frida Kahlo's A Few Small Nips, Goya still highlights as focus the naked bodies of the women using light to underscore their vulnerability and terror. It's artistic voyeurism. Or let's go back even farther to the Middle Ages. Depictions of the Saints. 
female saints, they're all young, they're all beautiful, they're all martyred for resisting offers of marriage or rape at the hands of men. In her Saint Agatha and the Sanctification of Sexual Violence, writer Martha Easton describes these images. A woman, stripped to the waist and bound to a column, stands displayed before a seated man and four other male onlookers. As she stares impassively before her, another man shears off her right breast with a large pair of pincers. Blood is visibly flowing from the wound. The men watch the woman. They watch her body. They watch her breasts. They watch her bleed. Easton continues, For some medieval male viewers, respect and esteem for St. Agatha and her suffering probably vied with an interest in her body and the sadistic, voyeuristic potential of her torture scene. Agatha becomes a conflation of sacrificial victim and sexual woman. Centuries after martyrdom essentially ended in the Orthodox Christian West, texts and images such as those of the Golden Legend fulfilled the popular interest in women's bodies and their graphic depictions of the semi-nude or fully nude bodies of female martyrs and the myriad of ways in which they were tortured. Margaret Miles terms this obsessive interest in female anatomy, quote, religious pornography, unquote. And moving forward again in time, let's consider The Hatred by Pietro Pagetta from 1896. Pagetta's hatred takes its inspiration from Lorenzo Stacchetti's Song of Hate, or Canto del Odio, which tells the story of a rejected suitor, yet again, who takes revenge on the corpse of his beloved. I shall with mine own nails dig up the earth by your virtue made dung, and split asunder the foul planks which hold your infamous carrion. Ah, how in your heart still vermilion shall I quench the hate of old. Ah, with what joy shall I protrude my claw. I'll just let that sink in for a minute. The body of a young woman and her desecration by sexual violence is not even sacred in death. But let's cut to the chase, where depictions of men's hatred of women are no longer surrounded with the trappings of myth and parable. They're right out in the open. Lustmord, noun, a state of ecstasy where one or more individuals torture and sexually violate a victim to the point of death. Lustmord was a theme rife in Weimar, Germany, and was horrendously realized in the work of such artists as George Gross, Otto Dix, and Hans Belmer. Maria Tadar, a professor of German at Harvard, writes in Lustmord, Sexual Murder in Weimar, Germany, that she finds it disturbing that the standard cultural histories of Weimar confront neither the mass murderers who loomed so large in public consciousness in the 1920s, nor the portrayals of sexual murder that litter the Weimar cultural canon. She was alarmed by the frequency with which the mutilated female bodies appear in Weimar art. Part one of Tatar's book describes how journalistic practice rendered violence against women, particularly those of questionable morality, natural and even justifiable. The book's second part offers case studies of Dix, Gross, Doblin, and Lang, artists Tatar calls, quote, personally implicated, unquote, in a male project to control female bodies through practices centered on the mutilated female corpse. She sets up a dichotomy in which male artists working through the traumas of war must kill their female subjects. The act of representing murder is treated as tantamount to murder itself, to reclaim creative powers threatened by female reproduction and self-sufficiency. Tatar measures artists' complicity in this misogynistic project by how sympathetically they portray sex murderers. 
Tadar reads Dix and Gross's self-portraits as sex murderers as statements of untroubled identification of a universal male drive to destroy femininity. Tadar's study offers us a sobering reminder of the ubiquitousness of the violated female corpse from the Victorian era up into our own. Another contemporary of George Gross and Otto Dix was Hans Bellmer, who is a German photographer who's best known for his photographs of a life-sized prepubescent doll that he produced in the mid-1930s. In Hans Bellmer, sexual heaven and sexual hell cannot be disentangled. In his later years, he confided to his companion, Unica Zern, that had he not sublimated his fascination with young girls by drawing them, he would have, quote, resorted to sexual murder. In his famous series, The Doll, Variations on the Assemblage of an Articulated Minor, the doll was a mannequin involving a natural wood metal skeleton for the body, head, and limbs in which wooden discs were installed with bolts and nuts under each hollow plaster joint. The doll's body was decorated with gauze and glue. Part of the reason for the doll series was Belmer's sexual attraction to his cousin Ursula, who was a minor at the time they first met. To quote a friend of his, Mackard Smith, he desired teenage girls. He was overwhelmed by pedophile fantasies. What we see is the artificial body of the doll girl, which the artist presents as a disintegrated object with a certain erogenous zone. Parts of the doll were connected to form bizarre poses. The head was combined with the buttocks, nipples were located next to the legs, and usually there were no hands at all. In the photos, we see the girl's legs in underwear, lace, and veils, which are definitely phallic emblems. Disassembly and assembly, arrangement and disarrangement, this is the way in which Belmar demonstrates the real object for possession and voyeurism. This ominous narrative will find different variations in the next series, where the doll will be photographed tied up, thrown downstairs, raped, hanged, which will give grounds to critics to accuse the artist of sadism and misogyny. The doll became a projection of forbidden desires for Belmar. According to Belmar, the love was not for the whole girl, but for her part. We see a doll's torso without a head, eyes resembling breasts located next to amputated limbs, and this separateness of body parts scattered in photographic space shocks the viewer. There are sadomasochistic manipulations with the doll's body. There's castration anxiety and the aura of voyeurism. They show that the object of male desire was the artificial body of a teenage girl. There's a a apocryphal story about how Belmer used to set up the doll outside his niece's room in various um, disgusting poses, hoping to get a rise out of her, to startle, to scare her. Quite simply, Belmer was a creeper. And without the lucky fact that he could draw and photograph and was an artist in his own right, by his own admission, he would have become a sex killer of little girls. If you want more modern interpretations of sexual violence against women or the dead girl as object of sexual violence, you don't have to go very far. There's not a lot of difference between Bernini's Pluto and the Rape of Persephone and the cover of Vanity Fair magazine where Tony Soprano grips the faceless, defenseless, and as usual, totally naked body of a young, beautiful, sexually available girl. What's the difference between the implied sexual violence from a photo shoot from America's Next Top Model or Hannibal? or the victims of Jack the Ripper. 
Look at the similarities between the sketch of one of the Ripper victims, Catherine Eddowes. My God, does anybody ever remember the victims' names? Ever? It was drawn by a policeman at the scene. And look at this wax anatomical model, now considered fine art, used by medical students during the Renaissance. These bodies are supine, open, on display, available, erotic, legs splayed, eyes half-closed, lips parted, in the throes of passion aped in representation in the bodies of the dead. Hatred of the female ripped open, disemboweled, dripping with violence and lust. The lust mord, the link between sex and violence, played out on the bodies of women, young women and girls, back and forth from ancient Greece to Rome, to the Middle Ages, to the Renaissance, to Weimar Germany, to today, to tomorrow, forever and ever and ever. Amen. Now I'd like to welcome to our discussion Elizabeth Ballou. I've been pronouncing it Bilyeu, but it's Ballou like Cat Ballou, art historian and sometime curator. Um, Elizabeth, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here with us. Hi, Kathy. Thanks so much for having me. I, I love the way you talk about art, and I love the way you talk about art history. I'm really mesmerized by your description and your analysis. And um, I'm also very empathetic to your response of shame as a 10-year-old girl. Yeah, I have to tell you that I've actually really been looking forward to having you here. I've, um, I've heard you speak before, and your, um, your insights into art history are always truly heartfelt and very meaningful, I think, in a very um, important way to students and anybody else that's interested in art history. So I, again, I just so appreciate having you here. Thanks. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it's, it's important the way that you're bringing it to the present and making these connections to the present with historical objects. Right. Um, and, the, and the feminism, too, is important here. Oh, yeah. That, and that personal experience, which I know that you also have had. It, actually, anybody that looks at art has a personal experience with experience with it, if it's a, a vital or um, a successful, in my opinion, piece of art for good or ill. I think. Should we? Yeah. Do you want to go ahead? Should we go ahead and start about and you know, start with the nostalgia? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the one of the um, points that struck me was the way that you talked about the contrast of the clothed man to the unclothed girl. And I think that's really important and it speaks to power relationships, power relationships that we see play out in art, men as more powerful than women. And then it's often played out as in the case of these paintings as violence against women. Yeah, which shows up again and again and again. And, you know, you, you don't think about fine art that way. Um, you made a really, really interesting um, observation when you sort of heard the rough cut of this. You were talking about the fact you thought these were so much bigger. The paintings yeah. were so much bigger. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I love the way you describe it as a little girl and you're, you know, you're keeping your sister out. And um, when you were describing these paintings, I imagine them to be large, just huge, filling the gallery walls. And um, then as, as I researched and we talked more, mm -hmm. 
they are a really unusual size. They're about what almost three feet by about four or five feet. So about three feet tall and four, four or five feet wide. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I thought, oh, that's so unusual. And then I remembered, you know, from the Renaissance, this phenomenon of Cassone painting. And that's C-A-S-S-O-N-E in the singular. And Cassone with an I instead of an E at the end is, is the plural. And these are wedding chests. Um, and it was, it was a, a profession that many Renaissance artists, men, uh, yeah. per- participated in. And, um, and I think that these were paintings that were probably embedded on, you know, in, in the, um, the main face of a, of a wedding chest. If, uh, as, as I was then looking up Cassoni or wedding chests, there is one in the same room, at least today, mm-hmm. in room 56B uh, uh, at the Prado. And that the one that's actually that's in the Prado isn't uh, doesn't have a, a narrative scene painted on it. It's gilded, and then as typical of many of these chests, it has the family crests. Mm-hmm of the bride and the groom. So did you sort of have that eureka moment when you, I mean, obviously you were thinking about Cassone, but when you actually saw that chest, it's like, aha, you know, this is exactly the size that these things would be. And did Botticelli paint Cassone? So my eureka moment with these paintings was thinking about a painting by Titian, who was another famous male Renaissance artist, and he painted a painting called Venus of Urbino. And the painting is of a a nude woman reclining on a bed, typical genre uh, in Renaissance painting. It was also commissioned, a commissioned painting. And the woman is in the guise of Venus, who was the goddess of love and beauty to make this less licentious and more okay or appropriate to look at. Um, In the background of the painting, there are two servants and they're digging around in these chests that are about two or three feet tall and four or five feet wide. And that was the first time I learned what a cassone, a, a wedding chest, was. And then thinking about the subject matter of oh, these paintings. Oh, I know. Um, which has very much to do with, with being married. Uh, I thought, oh, I'll do a little more research on cassone. And they, in fact, were... Most of well, it was it was Botticelli was a Cassoni painter, and it was um, a profitable business at the time. Usually, the uh, the father of the groom 
would commission the cassoni to be made and they would be then uh, filled with items at at the woman's house and as part of the wedding ceremony the cassone would be paraded often through the streets to the man's house to the groom's house and the bride would then move to the groom's house and be under their roof the subject matter were themes of allegory and history and love and and duty and uh, but something like this it's horrifying it yes i mean talk about yes. a, a lesson for the future wife and it, yes. and coming from the groom's family makes it even more insidious and right. it, it's right. really horrifying yes and, and then on top of that the wedding chest the cassone were usually stored in in the bride's bedchamber. And so this is something that she would look at every day. Yeah. Women did not especially upper class women did not go out of the house. They were very much confined to the house. Mm -hmm. So um this is what this is the imagery that you would live with. You know, something else I want to bring up if you don't mind is you know We've talked, I mean, this is just an overt painting depicting violence against women, obviously, in, in um, Renaissance art. But I know that you also have been doing some research on women painters and how they portrayed, you know, some of the things I talked about were, you know, the rape of Europa, the rape of the Sabine women, um, and how they were portrayed by men painters. Uh, Suzanne and the Elders, for instance, was a super popular theme. Um, can you speak a little bit about um, how women painters, were there women painters that portrayed any of these things and what was their take on them? Yeah, I think one of the questions that that comes up when you see this is, well, what were the women doing? What, what, what about the women painters and what was their subject matter? And then, and then questioning is, was violence uh, a part of their subject matter? And, you know, first of all, the, the women artists, there weren't that many, right? There were, yeah. there were not many. Yeah. And the, the women artists that we know of usually were artists because their fathers were, or they made it into the court of um, a royal court, and they were a painter at at the court. Um, but often it was because their father mm -hmm. was a painter. And then the subject matter for women is very different. Like a woman would never paint these kinds of history paintings. They would never paint the the large religious paintings for the church. Um, they were usually portrait painters. That was the appropriate subject matter for women. However, <laughs> there is an artist named Artemisia Genileschi who painted a little bit later than Botticelli. She's often considered a Baroque style painter, whereas Botticelli with uh, Botticelli would be considered Renaissance. Mm -hmm. And the Baroque paintings, uh, the Renaissance paintings are often a little more calm, cool, and collected. 
way. I mean, even though it's not necessarily the case in this in this one. And the the Baroque paintings tend to have more drama okay. uh, and lights and darks and things, especially the Italian Baroque. And so it, Artemisia Gentileschi was an Italian Baroque painter. And she did, um, speaking of Susanna and the elders, she did respond to, um, to that story a number of times. And Susanna and the Elders is a biblical story, and uh, it's from the book of Daniel. And, and the Susanna and the Elders story, as well as many other biblical stories and, and stories from history, are painted over and over again in the Renaissance and the Baroque. And Do you want to tell the story? Do you mind telling the story, really? Well, I mean, if, if you look at sort of... Tintoretto's version, and Tintoretto was a Renaissance painter at the time, uh, he shows uh, Susanna, and Susanna was a young woman, married woman, sitting at a pool of water, taking a bath, and she's looking at herself, she has a mirror and um, she's, she's looking at herself in the mirror and she's by herself at, at all, you know, by all accounts. And um, two older men are watching her and you as the viewer can see them spying on her mm -hmm. and you see that what they see but you also see that she doesn't know. So we are um, asked, we're asked to be voyeurs too, right? Yes. Just like yeah. the old men, right? Yeah. So we're spying on this naked young girl also. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, this is, this is considered, you know, this is one of the paintings that you look at when you look at Tintoretto's oeuvre in the history of art. I was just going to say this is also, you mentioned this earlier, that when, and I think we were talking about it earlier too, that, um, that when you paint pictures from the Bible or you paint pictures from the mythology or history and there's a naked woman involved or something like that, it becomes appropriate. Somehow putting right. that label on it makes mm -hmm. it appropriate to be a voyeur or right. to look right. at a naked woman. Yeah. 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 By associating the woman with virtue, whether that's being married or being a Venus, goddess. Yeah. the goddess, right. That, that, that gives it that guise um, of being appropriate mm -hmm. to look at. Then you look at a painting that Artemisia did of Susanna and the Elders. And again, just, just like the other artists, she painted scenes you know, many different times in, in different ways, but one in particular um, has Susanna filling most of the canvas, a good, what, two-thirds or three-quarters of the canvas, very much aware as the two older men look over the wall at her, are, very, are, are painted very close to her, and she's pushing them away, uh, clearly pushing them away. She's active then, as opposed to this... this yeah. uh, very active in resisting, um, very active in... As opposed to being the object. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, she's not. I mean, this is this is painted from the point of view of a woman who's who's had to deal with this before. And if you you know, and if you see all these paintings, because there's a gazillion of them of Suzanne in the Ellers, it is really different than all the other ones. Mm -hmm. It's I, I mean, I remember seeing it the first time and thinking, well, it's you know, who who painted this? Because it's so much. It was so. Right. The whole right. feeling of it was different. Yeah, in Tintoretto's painting, there's so much of a landscape and the garden wall that that is part of the painting. And in Genaleski's, Susanna is there, <laughs> right mm -hmm. in your face, saying no to the guys behind her, you know, leaning over and leering. Do you have any final thoughts on any of this that we've been talking about? Particularly, you know, you mentioned the power difference between clothed men and nude women, which happens a lot. You've mentioned the um, the fact that nude women were painted, and if you gave them a title like Venus or Susanna, they became more appropriate to be looking at, even though... But, I mean, like I said... As a kid, I felt only shame, especially mm -hmm. seeing them over and over and over and over and over again. I didn't get the, this is okay because they're a goddess. It was just naked ladies. Um, do you have any final thoughts at all on, on any of that? You know, I, th I think it's really important um, when people look at art to recognize those emotions, those first thoughts, um, and hold those and definitely be aware of them. So rather than just shuffling that shame away because it's okay to look at, you know, the, the woman's body because it's beautiful and, you know, on and on and on, which you hear all the time from your students. Um, I think it's, it's important to save those reactions and, and pick them apart that you've done, like you've done here. Looking at art history helps support that. And um, we, don't, we don't always get the answers. We don't know about Lucrezia Vinnie. We don't exactly know why this particular scene was on, um, was painted in, in this case, but it does give, an, give us an awareness mm -hmm. of, of, um, of the times, an awareness of our own um, place and response. And that's, that's the good thing about history. <laughs> it yeah. tells us about our, our present, what questions are we asking and why are we asking them? Um, tells us about ourselves. And all, I mean, you know, I'm sure they weren't thinking when they painted these things that art historians are going to be talking about me hundreds of years from now. Right. Um, right. I think that they were there to make some sort of a, some sort of an impact, mm -hmm. to make some sort of, uh, get some sort of reaction or emotion out of the people that looked at this stuff. And, and I guess by picking this stuff apart, like we're doing today, it, 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 it brings it back into the realm mm -hmm. of these were real people. They were yeah. as re they felt like yeah. we did. We you it know. was painted by men, for men, to maintain power, and doing that creating fear. Yeah, that's fear to yeah. maintain power, and we see that today. Yeah, in a, in a, in our society, in all all manner of media, from books to TV to anyway, we could just go. We could go on. Well, 
again, this is fantastic. I, I thank you so much for um, joining us. And thank I hope you. I hope that you I hope that you'll uh, do this again with me. I hope I hope. So fun. So, right. so fun. So great to talk with you, Kathy. Always. Yeah. I adore you. Hi, Adoria. Back. (laughs) Anytime to have a feminist conversation. Exactly. Exactly. It's good for the soul. What can I say? It is good. Thank you so much, Kathy. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Well, I want to thank you all for listening and uh, joining us for this last segment. the Perpetual Cult of the Dead Girl. And I really want to thank Elizabeth Bilyeu for joining us. Thank you so much. I'd also like you guys to know that Artist Obscura is available as a YouTube series and is available in the show notes. So I would love it if you joined us for our next episode, episode five, which we haven't titled yet, but I will tell you has something to do with the great god Pan and a she-goat. So join us. Artist Obscura is produced by Kathy Rick and Nathan Wilson. Our sound engineer is Nicholas Wilson. Please follow us on social media and check out our YouTube channel for unabridged episodes and more. If you liked what you heard, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash artistobscura.